If you're new to the valley or new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible and see what God has said to us there. And we've been working our way through the book of Mark over the last year plus or so, and we find ourselves in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. This past week, Friday, marked the 14th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And so Friday, we remembered the planes crashing into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. We remembered the terror that seized our nation and brought most of our lives to a halt. I don't know about you, but I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news. It was in high school history class, and we watched it on a small tube TV that was suspended above the blackboard. And seminal moments like this have a way of cementing themselves in time, never to be forgotten. I mean, life is full of them, not all of them so negative. We, we have weddings and graduations and funerals and births. I mean, I will never forget what it was like to see Elliot's head come into the world for the first time. It was amazing. I've told many of you that uh, if they had one of those things that takes your picture, like on a roller coaster, when you go down a big hill, it takes your picture and ca- catches you making a really awkward face. My face would have been something to look at at that precise moment when he entered the world. It was amazing. I mean, I'm never going to forget that. It's a memorable moment. Our text today features a seminal moment of its own in the gospel story. It's an event that Jesus promises will be memorialized and told wherever the gospel is proclaimed. This pericope, Mark 14, 1 through 11, it's actually two stories and a sandwich. And so let's get ourselves lined up here a little bit this morning. If you're new or forgetful, that may sound confusing. And so let me unravel the mystery for you a little bit. Throughout Mark, we've come across what we've termed literary sandwiches, wherein Mark interrupts one story with another in order to help us better understand both stories. And so he basically stuffs one story inside of the other. I've tried to illustrate it this way for better or for worse by describing the middle of the sandwich as the defining story. And so I say in the same way a sandwich is defined by its center, these literary sandwiches are defined by the story in their center. So for example, if you put a piece of chicken between two bread, two pieces of bread, you have a chicken sandwich. Or if you take a piece of ham and put it between two pieces of bread, you have a ham sandwich. If you take cucumber and put it between two pieces of bread, you have something that is in no way a sandwich, and you should probably not do that. We've talked about it many times to this point. And, and so here in Mark, he's done it again, and he's sandwiched for us two stories together. The outside story is one of treacherous betrayal, and the center story is one of loyal devotion. For homiletical purposes, we're going to to throw the bread off to the side and deal with the center story first and then return to the outside story. And so your outline this morning is going to be as follows. Part one, a story of loving devotion. That'll be verses three through nine of chapter 14. 
And then part two will be a story of treacherous betrayal, and that'll be verses 1 and 2, as well as 10 and 11. And then we'll try to contrast the two stories and see how they inform one another a little bit as we conclude. I've tried to summarize the main idea as Jesus allows himself to be prepared for burial and betrayed to the cross. Jesus allows himself to be prepared for burial and betrayed to the cross. And my goal this morning is to exhort you to concern yourself with giving, to ask not what can I get or What about me, but how can I give? What can I give? Ask what can I give? That's my exhortation to you this morning. Let's pray together before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for many models of discipleship that you've given to us and the many characters throughout scripture that we're able to learn from. Help us to learn from them now. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. Let us submit our hearts and our minds to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark introduces the story we're about to enter into with a story of treacherous betrayal. He starts this chapter off by informing us about a plot that's going on. It's a plot that is related to the arrest and killing of Jesus. But Mark interrupts that section of the story, which we're going to touch on later, with a flashback, right? Verses 3 through 9 is a flashback. So if you want to think about a movie when a character thinks of something that happened in their past and all of a sudden the scene shifts, that's what's going on here. We can know that this story is a flashback by way of Matthew's account and coupling it with John's account. John tells us that it happens before the Passover, Anyhow, we we read verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. I'm gonna pull up right there because the whole passage is surprising. And this is a surprising verse. We learned that Jesus, while he's at Bethany, has a meal at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. That should catch our attention. This is surprising. It would have been greatly problematic for a Jew to be in the house of a leper. Remember, leprosy made someone unclean and would result in their social isolation. It was a a faux pas. You would not be around these people. And so presumably, the man is healed of his leprosy, I, I would bet, by Jesus. And now Jesus is in his home relaxing after a meal. Despite no longer having leprosy, Simon the leper would still not be considered the most popular of company. He would still likely be treated as an outsider by the larger culture. But as we've seen again and again, Jesus loves outsiders. John tells us that Simon isn't the only unlikely partier at this celebration, though. Look in John's account in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 there. You don't have to flip there. You can just listen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Remember, Jesus raised him from the dead. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. That's verse two. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. I mean, this is one peculiar shindig. It's at Simon the leper's house and you've got a formerly dead guy there alongside Jesus' ragtag group of disciples. I mean, presumably there are others there as well, but it is an odd group at the end of the day. 
This odd group is brought together not by shared interest or common life experience, but by Jesus. And it's hard not to see them as a reflection of ourselves, a group of people once dead in our sin, stained with guilt before God, who were summoned out of the grave by Jesus' voice and cleansed by his touch. We too are a ragtag bunch of outsiders brought together not by shared interests or common life experience, but by Jesus. I mean, I love that the only thing some of us have in common is Jesus and that by virtue of our relationship with him, we've become family. I mean, it's awesome. If not for the gospel, I cannot imagine a scenario in which I would hang out with some of you, but, but I'm happy to hang out with many of you simply by the result of the unifying power of the gospel. The uniqueness of the group gathered at Simon the leper's house, though, it's not the most surprising part of the scene. Let's get back into verse 3. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his, that's Jesus, head. I mean, maybe you've been to some wilder gatherings than me, but I have never seen anything like this, right? I mean, a woman comes up holding a jar filled with ointment, filled with what's called pure nard, breaks the jar and pours it all over Jesus' dome. I mean, John's account, it's just as awkward, right? She says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John tells us that not only did this ointment get on his head, but it was covering him down to his feet. And the woman that put it on him, the unnamed woman in Mark's gospel, was actually Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She covers Jesus from head to toe and wipes his feet with her hair. I mean, this is, this is pretty bizarre. I mean, what's going on? First, let me say this. I'm not exactly sure. But here's what I think. Based on Jesus' response, which we're going to come to in verse 8, I think Mary has understood what the disciples have missed. Jesus will die in Jerusalem. Surely Jesus has spoken of his death and his resurrection more than just the three times that we have it recorded for us. And certainly it would have been possible for God to reveal this truth to Mary. And so it's, it's my belief that Mary understands that Jesus is headed for his death. And the only thing that she can think to do to try and help in some way is to cover Jesus with this very expensive ointment, with this pure nard. Dr. Aiken explains uh, the perfume like this. He says, nard was a sweet-smelling perfume from a rare plant found only in India. And I, I wasn't overly eager this week to try and pretend that I have a vast knowledge of Himalayan horticulture. And so if you want to learn more about nard, you can research it all on your own. That can be your homework this week. You can come back next week and tell me all about it. Anyhow, Mark tells us all we need to know about this substance, which is that it is very expensive. In fact, as we'll learn in verse 5, this amount of perfume, the amount she puts on Jesus, is worth about 300 denarii. That's equivalent to a whole year's salary in that day. I mean, can you imagine, gentlemen, spending a year's salary on perfume for your wife? I mean, especially one called nard. Ridiculous. Uh, the, the word nard just doesn't elicit a whole lot of confidence. 
doesn't sound like something that's sweet smelling. Poorly named. Anyhow, this very expensive perfume was contained in a jar and and likely, as Alistair Begg points out, it would have been used as a dowry gift in the event of a marriage proposal or as a means by which to pay for funeral costs in the event of a family death. It's also suggested that this was likely an heirloom because it's a very costly jar with very costly contents and it's weird how it ends up in the hands of Mary. At any rate, I think Mary realizes Jesus will die and the only thing she can think to offer him is this very rare and very expensive perfume. I think that she realizes she can't prevent his death and so she prepares him for it by dousing him with this ointment. Let's, let's just take a quick cursory, ver- cursory look at verse eight. Commenting on her action, Jesus says, she has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Again, I'll admit it's possible she didn't know what she was doing or why, but I think she knows Jesus will die and is doing the only thing she can to try and help. I mean, does she know fully what's about to happen? Probably not, but does she have a greater insight into Jesus' approaching suffering than the others do at this point? And of this, I have very little doubt. I think most certainly. Anyhow, Jesus' comment affirms her action as good and right. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. James Edwards writes in his commentary, the disciples have been forewarned of Jesus' impending death, but no overture overture commemorating his death has been forthcoming from them. What they fail to do, and perhaps even to understand, an unnamed woman understands and does. Anticipating the violent death of one numbered with transgressors, Jesus knew that his body would be thrown to dogs or cast into a common grave. He accepts the woman's anointing as a preparation for his burial, sparing him the indignity of a criminal's death. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. This unnamed woman, who we've discovered is is Mary, she's overwhelmed with gratitude towards Jesus. I mean, he's raised her brother from the dead. He's walked with her. They have a friendship. She's filled with a holy affection for Jesus. And she knows that he's getting ready to walk into some tremendous suffering in Jerusalem. She can sense something terrible. It's just on the horizon. Confronted with Jesus' coming death, she does the only thing she can. She worships him. extravagantly. She pours out her future and her dreams onto the head of Jesus. She worships him with everything she has to offer. She understands that he's worth more than some of the jar's contents, more than all of the jar's contents. That's why she breaks it. She wants to make sure she gets out every last drop of ointment. She understands that Jesus is worth everything. He's infinitely more valuable than the jar. 
or its contents. So she breaks the jar and comes before Jesus, broken herself to pour out to him her life alongside the perfume. She falls at his feet and wipes them with her hair. Mary recognizes Jesus' infinite worth and her complete unworthiness. And in so doing, she becomes a model of discipleship along with the poor widow whose story bookends chapter 13 with her own. If you remember, we talked about the poor widow two weeks ago. Chapter 12 ends with that story. Then we get Jesus uh, talk about the temple and the end that's coming in the world. And then we start here in chapter 14 with another story, another model of discipleship. This unnamed woman comes to Jesus. Mary comes to Jesus with radical faith, which is really just actual faith. And she appears very strange to the onlookers as she obeys Jesus' call to lose herself and follow him. And I think this is what happens when we understand who Jesus is. We abandon ourselves. We abandon our selfish ambition. Have you understood who Jesus is? I mean, have you ever been overwhelmed with gratitude for Jesus saving of you from your sins? So overwhelmed that you worshiped him in a way that was extravagant. This extravagant act of worship isn't, it's not exactly appreciated by everyone. Look with me at verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Matthew gives us a little bit more insight into who it is that's actually upset and doing the scolding. He writes this, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples' concern for the poor here is nothing but a thin disguise for their cold hearts and their clenched fists. I mean, it's, it's amazing on one hand and encouraging on the other just how ineffective a teacher Jesus was, right? He'd been teaching these guys for years and they still do not get it. They don't understand who he is. They don't get his infinite worth and value. And consequently, they devalue this woman's action as well as Jesus himself, believing the poor to be more worthy of her gift than Jesus. From the perspective of these grumblers, this is wasteful. This is a wasteful action on behalf on the part of Mary. These complainers, these disciples, they still don't understand that Jesus is the pearl of great price, that he is the treasure in the field. I mean, Mary's love for Jesus causes her to exchange her treasured possession for the treasure. She gives up all that she has so that she might gain that which is of supreme value, Jesus himself. Her action is not wasteful. It's worshipful. J.C. Ryle writes, The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. 
There's never wanting a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time to money and his affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they they don't blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money and pleasure or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's beside himself, they say. He's out of his mind. He's an enthusiast. He is a fanatic. Dr. Aiken shares similar sentiments. Some are willing to be poor in their possessions in order to be rich in their devotion to Jesus. Others are not. The latter are usually the critics. The world and sadly many in the church will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They will have little or no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable and convenient Christianity. But walk away from real career. You will be marked as foolish, living a wasted life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in an inner city in America among the poor and the hurting, and you will be deemed silly and impractical. Walk away from family and friends to head out onto the mission field among the unreached people of the world. There are still 7,000 plus unreached people groups, by the way. And take your small children with you to do so, and you will be chided as reckless, radical, even imbalanced, and in need of some serious counseling. Some might even suggest you're on drugs. Here's the point. Following Jesus with all of your life will earn you criticism and sideways looks, sometimes even from other believers. Don't be discouraged, friend. Follow him. Worship him extravagantly. Then we also need to ask ourselves, am I a fault finder? Are you a fault finder, a propagator of moderate and convenient Christianity? Have you been overly critical of someone that you need to go and repent to after service? While this woman worships Jesus rightly, the disciples express their anger, flare their nostrils, and they offer scolding criticism at her. But Jesus steps in. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I mean, I love this scene. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their misplaced, angry rebuke, telling them, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Worship of Jesus, it's always beautiful. The disciples judge by appearances, but Jesus judges by motive. By the disciples' standards, this woman has done a wasteful thing, but by Jesus' standards, she's done a beautiful thing. A good thing. Can you imagine how relieving Jesus' words must have been to this woman? 
how wonderful it was for her to hear, leave her alone. I mean, she had sacrificed the most valuable thing she owned in an act of worship. And those closest to Jesus, his own disciples, scolded her. I mean, how devastating their disapproval would have been, right? Disapproval of others is it's always a very bitter pill to swallow. And you wonder as she listens in and hears all the gossip, all the chatter about what she's doing. Here's the comments of her wastefulness, how it's not prudent. It must have been tempting for her to pull back, to stop worshiping. I think it's, it's natural for all of us to want to gain approval and acceptance from others. And often when we, we fail to do it, it can be crushing. And when we feel we are rejected or disliked, most of us, most people will do whatever it takes to regain acceptance and approval. I wonder whose disapproval tempts you away from following Jesus? Hear that question again. Whose disapproval tempts you away from following Jesus? It's been a while since we were in Galatians, but but do you remember Paul's wonderful pledge of allegiance in verse 10 of chapter one? Remember, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, seek to please Christ, knowing that he approves of you. If you are united to him by faith. Jesus continues his reprimand in verse seven, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. You know, sometimes this verse is misunderstood to say Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Nothing, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Time after time after time, we see Jesus love the unlovely and care for the marginalized of society. In fact, he identifies with the poor and the hurting so much to the extent that he says in Matthew 25, and and I'm summarizing here, if you neglect the poor, you neglect me. Jesus loves the poor. So what is he saying here? First, I think the primary issue is between always and not always. Poverty will continue until Jesus merges heaven and earth into the new Jerusalem. But the opportunity to care for Jesus as Mary does here, that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Secondly, I think Jesus is asserting his supremacy here. James Edwards comments, Jesus puts forward his own person in scandalous prominence. You can help the poor anytime, but you won't always have me. We can perhaps justify such a statement from the mouth of God, but it is hard to imagine a justification for such a statement from a mere mortal. In placing himself above the poor, Jesus places himself above the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. 
You see, the greatest commandment supplants all the others and has all the others wrapped up in itself. The command to love God with everything is the whole of the law and its corollary is to love neighbor. Jesus is claiming that to worship him, to love him is to fulfill the command to love God with everything and is more important than anything else, even caring for the poor. When we truly love God with all, we naturally love our neighbors who are made in God's image as ourselves. Obedience to all of God's commandments flows from obedience to the supreme command to love God first and foremost. If we, if we get the order wrong, we can fall prey to idolatry and miss the point. It's possible to love people without loving God. I think this is easily seen just in the many benevolent philanthropists that care nothing for Christ, right? The point, though, is that caring for the poor is a good thing unless it comes at the expense of worshiping God. Doing good things is good unless doing those good things comes at the expense of worshiping God. Jesus is saying here, the money could have been used for the poor, but it would have been at the expense of Mary's unmitigated worship of me. Thus, Mary has, again, chosen what is right and it will not be taken from her. Devotion to Jesus is always the Christian's priority. Mary's action expresses her attitude towards Jesus. She sees him as beautiful and worships him beautifully. Jesus continues in verse eight. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Are you like this woman? doing everything you can to follow Jesus? Do you, do you give him your best and your first? Do you give him what's left over of your time and affections? What question is rattling around your mind as you approach Christ and his church? Are you always asking, what can I get? What's in it for me? Or are you asking, what can I give? This woman asks herself what she can give in response to Jesus' love. And her answer is everything. Consequently, her extravagant act of worship is told wherever the story of Jesus is told. And she is lifted up as a model of true discipleship. Entire devotion is the indelible mark of true discipleship. It's the mark of a Christian. Does entire devotion to Jesus characterize your life? This woman is remembered because of her devotion to Christ. I wonder how you will be remembered. So that's the center story of loving devotion. Now let's take a look at the outside story of our literary sandwich here. And it is a story of treacherous betrayal. 
Let's go back to verse one of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Mark introduces this story and prepares us for the flashback by telling us that it's the season of Passover. The Jewish feast of Passover and unleavened bread was a time of thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance of the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. This Independence Day included the slaughter of a Passover lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost about 1,400 years prior, and it caused the death angel to, to pass over each home where he saw it and spare the life of the firstborn children uh, inside of those homes. Uh, you can check that out in Exodus 12 for homework, if you like. But it's, it's against this backdrop and the shadows of secrecy that we witness the chief priest and the scribes plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. They don't want to cause an uproar among the crowds, and so they've decided to wait until after the feast to execute their plan. Let's not miss the irony here. Those we would expect to be most sensitive to the will and purposes of God seem to be most oblivious to who Jesus is. I think which provides us with an important truth. Not all ministers are the same. Not every so-called Christian minister is in fact a Christian. Not every Christian leader teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because someone achieves some impressive academic triumph and attaches some letters to the end of their name doesn't mean that they are trustworthy or that they are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Just because somebody is a religious leader doesn't mean that they're a friend of Jesus. According to Paul, if anyone propagates a message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are accursed and condemned no matter what they call themselves. Friends, be careful who you learn from, who you trust, who you follow. The corruption of religious leaders is not a thing of the past. There are still many whom tout themselves as Christians, but think very little of Christ. As we've observed, the Sanhedrin thought very little of Jesus and determined to wait until the crowds dissipated to arrest him. But their plans were changed when they were presented with an opportunity they just could not refuse. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, that's Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. This is Bruce Willis at the end of Sixth Sense type plot twist going on here. I know a lot of us know the end of the gospel story. We've read through the gospels, but if you are hearing it for the first time, if you can imagine what it would be like to read through the Bible for the first time, this is a crazy plot twist. We do not expect one of the 12, an insider, to join Jesus' enemies. So we have yet another surprise in our passage. Initially, we are confronted with an outsider who's been revealed to be a true disciple, and now we're confronted with an insider who has been revealed to be a false disciple. I mean, how was Judas able to be so close to Jesus yet miss him? 
After spending years with Jesus, it would seem that his conversion should have been a layup, right? Somehow he misses it. Why? Why why does Judas betray Jesus? Some have suggested that Judas acted as a spy of the Sanhedrin or that he was a closet zealot disillusioned with Jesus' political passivity and that he hoped by his plot to force Jesus into action. I'm not a buyer on those theories because of how the story is presented to us in Mark and Matthew and because of what we learn from John's account. See, Matthew and Mark both sandwich the story of Mary's extravagant devotion in the center of the story of the Sanhedrin's plot and Judas's betrayal. You couple that with the heart of Judas, which is shown to us in, in John's account. It's verse four of chapter 12. This is what John writes. We see his heart here. Judas is scary. One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John shows us that it's Judas who voices the opinion of the disciples and the others who disapprove of this woman's act. Further, he informs us that Judas cares not for the poor, but for his pocketbook. He is Jesus' treasurer, and he's a thief. If we take the information about Judas' attitude and consider it alongside the way that Matthew and Mark report the story of his betrayal to us, I think we're able to see at least a little bit of why Jesus betray, Judas betrays Jesus. The contrast between Judas's heart and Mary's heart is intentional. She models true discipleship by valuing and loving Jesus supremely, whereas Judas models true idolatry by valuing and loving money supremely. Greed is sneaky. No one thinks they're guilty of it. Judas' love for money, ultimately, it overwhelms his love for Jesus. I'd like to posit that the reason Matthew and Mark sandwich Mary's story of loving devotion in the center of the story of Judas's treacherous betrayal is because it was a tipping point in the life of Judas. I think when Jesus corrected Judas and the rest of those who were scolding and criticizing Mary, that Judas never repented. He never got over. He never forgot it. And he carried it around with him. Think his bitterness and his greed mixed together to create a deadly cocktail, the consumption of which led him to hate Jesus. How do you respond to correction? Do you joyfully and gratefully repent? Do you refuse it, defend yourself, and get angry? How do you respond to correction? How you respond to correction will tell you a lot about yourself. It'll reveal where your identity ultimately rests and who your God really is. If Jesus is your God and your identity is in him, correction is a blessing. It helps you to become holy as he is holy 
You need to get angry or upset because you know that your life is hidden in Christ with God. You know that you are adopted into the family of God by the blood of Christ. You know his blood signifies and protects his people and that you are protected beneath it and marked by it. If something or someone else is your God, then any correction of you is is a potential threat to your sense of self-worth and your identity. Any rebuke becomes the occasion for self-justification, for unrighteous indignation, and for secret bitterness. Judas didn't care for the correction of Jesus, and he rejected the teaching of Jesus. Judas is not Jesus' friend. He simply keeps up appearances for its convenience. I mean, I hope this is not true of any of us. May this never be true of any of us that we pretend to follow Jesus because it's somehow convenient. Judas didn't just leave Jesus. He he betrayed him. He sought out the chief priests and the scribes in order to sell out Jesus. And like Mary, Judas too is remembered. Not for his extravagant devotion to Christ, but because he was willing to exchange Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How will you be remembered? When I think about that question, I also think about how much I want to be like Mary, but how often Judas readily appears in the mirror. I mean, Judas is not the only person nor the last person to exchange Jesus for money or for something else. We've all been like Judas. We've all exchanged the truth of God in favor of lies. We've all done what we want instead of what we were created for. We've all rebelled against God defied his laws and earned death. Denied him his right as God. He created us. We're his creatures. We ought to obey. But instead we've attempted to de-God him and enthrone ourselves. And the truth is that we need an exchange of our own. In order to have peace with God and peace with one another, in order to have true life, we must accept the grace of God and trust in Jesus Christ as our substitute. See, he lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death that we should have died. And the gospel is adoption through propitiation. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God and allows us to be adopted into the family of God. The gospel is a great exchange with the God-man. Jesus bears the punishment that you and I deserve and bestows on those who trust in him the riches that only he deserves. The cross is God's divine proposal for marriage. It's the expression of his love and his devotion to his people. That's the good news. Jesus invites you to unite yourself to him by faith so that his death will become your death and his life will become your life and his family your family. That's life's greatest question. Will you be wed to Jesus?
Will you follow him by faith? God's grace enables us to see Jesus as beautiful and it changes everything. I think that's the primary difference between Christians and non-Christians. I think it's the primary difference here between Judas and Mary. See, Judas just sees Jesus as useful, but Mary sees Jesus as beautiful. Judas asks, what can I get from Jesus? Mary asks, what can I give to Jesus? Judas exchanges Jesus for some treasure. Mary exchanges her treasure for Jesus. Judas denies Jesus and follows his heart. Mary denies herself and follows Jesus. Jesus doesn't unite himself with people that find him useful, but to those that find him beautiful. And those that find Jesus beautiful can't help but pour out their lives to him in extravagant worship and devotion because they know he has poured out his life for them. Do you find Jesus beautiful? Perhaps today is the day the twist in your life story is revealed. And you find yourself surprised at your own salvation as you see Jesus as beautiful for the first time. Non-Christian, I hope this is true for you. That you can drop the non as you leave here. Or perhaps today is a day that causes you to remember the first time you saw the beauty of the Lord. The first time that you tasted and saw that the Lord is good. Oh, Christian, let this message drive you into extravagant worship of our God and King. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for pouring out your blood on our behalf. We thank you that you died in our place. That the truth of the gospel shows us that we are more wicked than we ever dared dream. Yet in you, more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Jesus, help us to never forget that you are the point of our Christianity that you are the point of our gathering together, that you are our God, that you are our friend. Help us to love you more deeply. Help us to worship you extravagantly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.